Our scripture reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. If you're looking it up in your Bible, it is also in your bulletin if you have that in front of you. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is God's word. Okay, thank you, Keith, for uh, leading us in prayer and in, and in reading. And I'm reminded, having seen Keith up here, uh, Keith leads Engage Youth, which is a, a youth, uh, an engaged group for high school age youth that's meeting currently at the church office. Today they are meeting. Keith will be there. Uh, lunch will be there. And uh, if you're a hungry teenager, you should be there too. There you go. All right. Um, so we have been uh, making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, those of you who are guests with us, I, um, we've been doing this for the last number of weeks together. And the, Ecclesiastes is a remarkable book. It is a profound book. It is an extremely deep book. Herman Melville, who wrote maybe the greatest novel ever written in the English language, at least, Moby Dick, um, he called the book of Ecclesiastes the truest of all books, actually. And uh, Tom Wolfe, uh, some of you may know him from uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, probably his most famous book. He's the guy who always wears a white suit and a, and a white fedora. Anyhow, he's, he's kind of a, he's kind of a 20, 20th, 21st century novelist of some renown. Anyhow, he said it was the greatest single piece of writing he knew. And Bono... You guys all know who Bono is, I hope, right? He said it was one of his favorite books. So if for no other reason than Bono, you should read Ecclesiastes and find out what all the buzz is about. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, Kohelet, who we, we call the teacher, he is on a quest. He is a brilliant man who is trying to figure out the meaning of life. He, he's trying to figure out what the purpose of existence is when you live life, what he calls under the sun, it's a phrase that you hear over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it describes a life in which there is no spiritual realm, there is no God behind the physical world that we see, there is just the physical world in front of us, 
And because there is just the physical world in front of us, we have to kind of figure out the meaning of life on ourselves and so he, or by ourselves. And so he undergoes this project. The whole of the book of Ecclesiastes is him going through this project of trying to figure out what the meaning of life actually is. And he comes to the end of this project and in chapter 12, verse 8, he ends up saying the very same thing he said at the beginning of the project. He says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. So he says in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, my suspicion is, is that life lived under the sun is utterly meaningless. Let's find out. He explores, the, uh, uh, explores life from a whole bunch of different perspectives, and he comes to the end of that project, and he says, it's just as I suspected. Life, indeed, is completely and utterly meaningless. Bleh. Right? Like, what a downer. After all of this, this is where we end up. He, 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 he expresses this sort of nihilistic flavor. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that weird to us because we are modern Western people. We live in our post, what's called postmodern, post-Christian, Western, enlightened culture. And frankly, this nihilistic flavor is very much a part of what's in the, the cultural water, if I can call it that, right now. So a lot of you probably watch Netflix, right? You, you have Netflix and you like to watch Netflix. Uh, it's astounding to me what you can watch on Netflix right now. You can watch a show called uh, Riverdale, which is a, a reboot of my favorite cartoon that I used to read as a kid growing up, Archie Comics, okay? I used to read those, those digests like crazy. And if you watch Riverdale now, you discover it's very, very dark. It's very, very kind of nihilistic. And it's not the only one. There's a, another very, very popular show on Netflix right now. I do not recommend that you watch this. I, I'm not actually recommending Riverdale either, but I, I, this one, there's a show called 13 Reasons Why, which is basically an unpacking of a young woman who, a young girl who takes her own life and she explains why she does that. Like how dark and sad that is, eh? But you know what? Even kids' movies have this nihilistic streak running through them right now. Probably the best series of children's movies out there is the Toy Story series. Like for quality in each of the installments, I mean, Cars starts out really well and then it gets really not very good. And then it starts getting better again. Toy Story is quite impressive all the way through. And, and in Toy Story 3, the, basically the plot is about how Andy is now growing up and he doesn't have a need for the toys anymore and it's very dark and it's very sad uh, because the toys are now discovering that their purpose for existence is being taken away from them and there's an exchange between Woody and Lotso, you know, Lotso the bear, and Lotso, he says to Woody, he says, you think you're special, cowboy? You're a piece of plastic. You were made to be thrown away in a kid's movie. Come on. Now, spoiler alert to those of you who haven't seen 
it's Toy Story 3, uh, another kid comes along who gives the toys purpose again, so everything's good, but if you have half a brain, you got to know that that kid's going to grow up too, and eventually these toys are going to be in the same circumstances. And Lotso, at one point, he says, we're all just trash waiting to be thrown away. And that's the postmodern, nihilistic kind of perspective. Live any way you want. There is no afterlife. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no rhyme or reason to any of this. You're just here. And so live the way you want to live because at the end, you're just like a piece of trash that gets thrown out. And if you read chapters 1 through 12, verse 8 of the book of Ecclesiastes, you might come to that the conclusion that the teacher agrees with that perspective. But thankfully, the book doesn't end there. It doesn't end at verse 8 of chapter 12. It continues and it shows that, that you would be wrong. The teacher doesn't believe that. See, the teacher who has been asking questions for 12 long chapters, he finally starts giving answers. He comes to the conclusion of his project, and in the conclusion of his project, he comes to the conclusion that, that the key to life, that the key to meaning in life, the key to joy in life, can actually be discovered. He gives what you could call his final answer. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this final answer. I don't know why I just lifted my bulletin up. Uh, we're going to look at his final answer that he gives in his word, in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at three things. You can follow along in the uh, bulletin. There we go. That's why I picked it up. In the sermon outline, we're going to look at the fact that there is an answer. We're going to look at the content of the answer, and we're going to understand why this answer he gives is the answer that you and I have been looking for. And this is... This is all of us. We're all looking for an answer, and he gives us this answer. Okay, first one, the fact that there is an answer. In verse 9, a narrator is introduced. This is a different voice than the voice of the teacher. We've been listening to the teacher for 12 chapters, and now all of a sudden there's this other voice introduced, the voice of the narrator, and he or she, whomever, says, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. And what this is kind of like is, is it's, like, it's like, you know, those of you who have been to university or college, at the end of the course, you're supposed to give a teacher evaluation thing, and you're going to say, you know, was this a good course? Was the teacher good at teaching this course? And the narrator is basically doing that and saying, you know, teacher did a really good job. He set out a lot of truths for us to, to ponder and to understand. And he says that what he taught, verse, 10, uh, verse 11 um, or sorry, verse 10, the teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote, he says, was upright and true. In other words, the narrator is saying that the teacher taught things that were trustworthy. They corresponded with reality. They actually uh, made sense. They were reliable. If you test the things the teacher says against the world in which you live, you will discover that they are actually true. And then in verse 12, 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads, their collective sayings like firmly embedded nails. What he's saying is, is the teacher provoked us to think. A goad was a, kind of a prick on the end of a stick, 
And if you had like oxen or a donkey or something that you were trying to herd and trying to send, you would whack them with a goad and they'd go out, 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 and they'd carry on. He's saying those, those wise words, that's what they did to me as a student of the teacher. They made me think. They made me wrestle with things. It made me struggle with things. And then he says they're also like nails, which is probably a, a reference to tent pegs, meaning that they, these truths, when I, when I grabbed onto them, they were stabilizing, the way tent pegs stabilize a tent in weather, right? When it's windy out, you know what I'm saying? Those of you who go to provincial parks in the summer... And so all these things, the, te- the student is saying that the stuff the teacher has taught me, these things have acted as an anchor to my being. They have grounded my life. They have, he's given me answers so that I, I understand some things that I didn't understand before. I now have, I have perspective and I have understanding and I have purpose and I have reason. And, and you're wondering, okay, why are you getting all worked up about this? And the reason I'm getting worked up about this is because it's huge. That's huge. Huge. That's huge. The, the whole point of this project of inquiry has been to find answers. And that is very counter to the project of inquiry in our modern culture right now. We are a culture that loves questions. But frankly, we don't like answers. We don't like certainty. We like open-endedness. We, we say, how, how, can, how can we be sure of anything? Absolute certainty to us, we say, is bad. We're, we're all on a journey in our culture, but if anybody says that they've actually arrived at a destination, we, we, we hold them suspicious. And you know what? That's not all that different from the thousands of years ago when the teacher lived. Because in verse 12, he says this. He says, the making of many books, of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study, he says, wearies the body. We're, we're a culture that is always seeking but never finding, always asking questions, always on a search for truth, but never discovering what that truth is. And I'm really disappointed in myself because I, for, I forgot to bring the quote with me, but I'm going to try my best to paraphrase it. C.S. Lewis, in a wonderful book that I strongly recommend everybody read at some point in their lives called The Great Divorce, which is an allegory in, that he wrote about a busload of people from hell. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but they take a trip to the outskirts of heaven. I'm not saying the theology is all bang on, okay? But they take, an, they take a trip to the outskirts of heaven. And the various members of this trip, they encounter angels from heaven or persons from heaven uh, in various ways who invite them for various reasons to give up whatever it is that's got them in hell and come into heaven. And one of the exchanges is between this angel and, and a seeker, a skeptic. He's a, he's a PhD in philosophy or literature or something like that. Uh, and he's in hell and this angel invites him into heaven. And the guy says, oh yes, man, it will be great. I would love to bring my expertise to some uh, discussion groups and, and, and inquiry and all that kind of stuff. You could really use me in heaven. And the angel says, we have no use for you in heaven at all. <laughs> How's that for an invitation? 
Your gifts are not needed here. In fact, your gifts are, are, are to be laid aside because this is the place of answers. This is not the place of questions. This is the place of certainty and solidity, not the, not the place of free inquiry and, and questioning. All the things that your mind and heart have been looking for are found here. That's why it's called heaven. And, and the, the seeker actually kind of reacts negatively against that and says, well, but... but you know, you can't put people's minds in a straitjacket. And he said, no, it's not a straitjacket. When you clamp down your mind on truth, that's not restrictive, that's freedom. It's tiring to live a life of constantly wondering if something is sure and true. And, and, and it, 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 you think you're being sophisticated, but you're actually being cowardly. And of course, this guy is like, how can you dare say that about me? He says, you know, uh, I'd love to come and check it out, but I'm really kind of busy and and, and C.S. Lewis says that, that off he goes to um, uh, a book study or a Bible study in hell. And he won't enter into heaven because he has to hold on to this great freedom. See, people say we should always keep an open mind. But G.K. Chesterton, who was a brilliant 20th century Catholic man of letters, writer, think public intellectual, think Rex Murphy, but like really big, like this guy was big, uh, and really, really brilliant. And he said, you know, to merely have an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, just like opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. How can you raise children if all you give them are questions? How can you give them real direction in life when you're always searching? It's exhausting to always be searching. And the teacher, this narrator says, the teacher has finally helped me end my search. He's finally helped me plant my feet on something solid. I remember talking to a man who I highly respect. He is a crown attorney. And he's very, he's probably the smartest person I have ever known personally. He's very bright. And he's a crown attorney, and he works in the most terrible of cases, okay? We're talking murder and rape and child molestation and these kinds of things. Like, he works in the, and he's a crown attorney. And he, he, I remember him once saying to me as I was raising my kids, he says, you have got to create for your kids a solid foundation. And, every, and I'm like, yeah, okay. But he says, but the point is, is you've got to let them kick it. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you've got to have a truth that you believe so deep in your bones that it is utterly immovable so that when they come from this side and they kick it, they hurt their toe. And they come from this side and they kick it and they, they hurt their shin. And they come from this side and they kick it and, and it just is immovable. And they kick it from all the way around. And you gotta let them kick it, he said. You cannot tell your kids to shut up and just do it. You gotta let them kick your truth and argue with them. And you gotta show them that it's solid. And as they kick it and break their toes on it over and over and over again, he said, eventually... They'll plant themselves on it. And I think he's right. I'm not saying I did what he said. I'm not saying I'm smart too. Because life has complicated. Life is hard. 
And if you're constantly going through this hard, complicated life, wondering and enjoying philosophical inquiry, but never having any truth on which to plant your life, you will exhaust yourself. And the teacher is giving us, he's saying to us, truth, certainty, not about everything, but about the core thing, he says it's available. Why is it available? In verse 11, he says, it's given by one shepherd. And I'll just say very quickly, the shepherd in the Bible is the guide. The shepherd in the Bible is the one who shows you where to go. When you read Psalm 23, your shepherd leads you beside quiet waters and you lie down in green pastures. The point is, is you wouldn't find the water or the pasture without the shepherd. The shepherd is the one who takes care of you and, and guides you in the way of what is right and what is good. And the teacher is saying, life under the sun is not the way it has to be. There is someone above the sun. The shepherd is the one who knows what is right and what is true. And his teaching, because he is the creator, because he is the one who's given the, the universe its order, both physically in the physical laws and spiritually in the spiritual laws, you can trust him. He is the lawgiver who stands outside of our culture, who stands outside of history itself, and therefore his truth is something that you can take to the bank. He's the shepherd. So, that's the truth. There is a truth. What's the content of the truth? What is it? And we don't have to spend too much time on this because it's pretty simple and clear. Verse 13, he says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's unbelievable. If you think about it, this is unbelievable. This guy is the smartest man who ever lived. This is a man who was endowed with supernatural wisdom, who had a profound intellect. This is a man who would make our modern intellectuals look like simpletons. In comparison, and this is a man who has gone on this journey of trying to understand the deep and profound truths that, that lie behind all the, the stuff of life, and he has attempted to, to study intellectualism. He has attempted moralism. He has attempted hedonism. He has attempted materialism. He's attempted existentialism. He's attempted nihilism. He's tried all these things that the philosophers ever since him have, have laid down as the principles of life. And at the end of the day, he's so sophisticated, but at the end of the day, he says it all basically boils down to this. Fear God. Keep his commandments. It's that simple. It reminds me once of what Karl Barth said. Karl Barth was probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century. I mean, some, I disagree with much of, of, of what he taught uh, and what he uncovered, but that does not change the fact that he had an absolute brilliant mind. The legend is that when he was near his death, he was asked, what's the most profound theological truth you've ever uncovered? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's so simple. That doesn't make it easy, okay? Simple doesn't translate into easy. He says, fear God, keep his commandments. In the Bible, that's actually two ways of saying the same thing. Fearing God is keeping God's commandments. When you keep his commandments, you are demonstrating that you fear God. Now, we've got to do a little bit of work here because fear is 
a negative thing in most of our minds. When we hear of fear, we're thinking, ah, God, don't get me. Is that what he's talking about? And for a certain class of people, yes, that is what he's talking about. Those who don't know God as a heavenly father, those who don't know God as their savior through Jesus Christ, they will have that kind of fear. It's described right there in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. When we think of judgment, if you, are not, if, you are not, uh, if you don't know God as your father, you will be terrified of him as your judge. And that's completely understandable. But in Scripture, this idea of fearing God is far more often connected to those who are in a relationship with God than those who are outside of a relationship with God. And it describes admiration, it describes awe, it describes love, it describes adoration. It's the same thing that Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God and who is the Son of God, the same thing that he says in John chapter 14 when he says, you will obey me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because you see, when you, are, when you love someone, you want to obey them, you want to follow them, you want to please them, you want to do the things that they say. That's why, so to fear God is to love God, and to love God is to obey God. It's the same thing. Like, think about it this way, okay? Uh, some people say Mike Babcock is the best coach in the NHL. Maybe. One thing's for sure. His players, they will go to the mat for him. Everywhere he's been, that's how it's gone. And if you ask his players, you know, what's he like? And they'll say, you know, he's tough. He's tough, man. He's hard on us. Uh, but they so deeply respect him. They, they so deeply love him and know that he loves them so much that they, they are willing to do whatever he tells them to do because he, they know that he has their best interests at heart, that he is seeking to, to, to mine from them, get out of them all the good that he sees in them because he's such an expert and because he knows hockey and he knows hockey players so well, he can see what they're capable of and he, he, is the, he directs them in order to unleash and, and, and flourish their abilities. And it's the same kind of thing you'll hear about soldiers who are so amazed by their leader, by their commanding officer, that they will walk into the face of death for them, sometimes without even blinking. And this is what you got to understand. There's, look, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the Christian faith. A lot of people understand Christianity and, and obeying God and following His will and doing what He tells you to do as kind of a form of knuckling under. You know what I mean? Like, like you follow God and you obey the commandments and you do the things He says you should do because you have to. That's kind of the deal. If I want to be saved, if I don't want to go to hell, if I want to have a good life, if I want God to bless me, well, I guess I got to do these things. And so you, you knuckle under here. And if you're here this morning and you, you've kind of understood Christianity to be that way, I would hope that you would talk to some of the people of Grace Valley Church and you'd see the smile on their face and see the joy in their hearts about knowing Jesus. And, and then ask yourself, do they look oppressed? Do they look like they're doing their duty? Sorry to put you on the spot right now, Chris and Annette, but we talked about you earlier. Talk to people who do stuff like fostering or, or, or other sacrifices and ask them, you know, 
I guess, is that kind of what you got to do? Is that why they're doing it? We got to do it? Nobody takes on a sacrifice like that because they got to do it. I don't care how sanctified you say you are. You will not do it unless you want to do it. Nobody follows Jesus, really, truly follows Jesus into the maw of the world that sometimes will, with hostility, chew them up and spit them out. Nobody does that, really does that, unless they want to do it. Um, let's listen to Johnny Cash. At the very beginning, uh, on the front of the bulletin, what does it say? Th- this is, I don't know how much, how much you know about Johnny Cash or who listens to Johnny Cash, but this is the first verse of the song, I Walk the Line. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. See, Cash is describing his relationship with his wife, and he's saying, I am faithful to you because you're mine. Because you're mine, I walk the line. You hear that? It's not my faithfulness is what binds me to you. It's because I'm bound to you, I'm faithful to you. Because I love you, I, I, I do what, what I ought to do. And that's the motivation for a Christian. That's why we obey. It's out of love. Um, one more thing. Why is this the answer? Why is, why is obeying God and following His ways the answer? Well, remember the thesis. The teacher is saying that life under the sun is life without God, without a supernatural God, and, and it's meaningless in the end. And the reason is, is because we all die and we all are forgotten and we all just become worm food in the end and time chews up everything, right? But then the author says, but the reality, the truth is, the teacher says in verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment. God will bring every deed into judgment. In other words, he's saying, look, death is not actually the end. He's saying, Time does not swallow up everyone. Yes, all history will stop. The clock will run out. But not because the sun is going to burn up and burn everything else up or the earth will go cold and everything will die. Oh no, because God, who is in control of history, He is going to end history. He's going to end this part of the story. It's going to stop when He comes to judge. And yes, that is scary for some people and ought to be. And we'll get back to that. But understand the implications of this. If God is going to put a stop to time, if God is going to come and judge everything, what that means is is that this life actually does matter. What's happening in the here and now does make a difference. What what, What happens here reverberates into eternity. Your life has significance in the here and in the now. It has purpose. No matter how small you think you are, no matter how 
unimportant, no matter how lacking in skills or qualities or gifts or abilities or resources or whatever, no matter how ineffectual you have felt your life to be, the Bible says, the teacher says, your life actually matters. If you're a teenager here, And there are times where you say to yourself, I didn't ask to be born. I, I googled that phrase, I didn't ask to be go- born, and I ended up on a Reddit. I've recently discovered something called Reddit. I know I'm way behind the times. I, a, a Reddit thread. And it was the most heartbreaking thing. It was just one person after another going, why the, pardon my language, why the hell am I here? Nobody cares about me. I don't matter. I am meaningless. I am pointless. That's why we're getting stories like Netflix shows like 13 Reasons Why. It was heartbreaking. But the reality of the... the, You may didn't... Maybe you didn't ask to be born but God did. The almighty creator of the universe wanted you to be born. Listen to this. This is Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Every life matters. See, you get to wake up every day and say, I have a reason to live. Do you know how precious that is? You know how precious it is to be able to wake up every day and say, I have a reason to live. It is to fear God. It is to obey his commands. And you might say to yourself, well, what is in that for me? Well, only the satisfaction and the joy and the fulfillment that comes from knowing you're fulfilling your purpose. It says in the, in the New Testament, NIV version that we're using, it says, um, this is the whole duty of man, and you might see that word duty and go, "Mm," like, duty, I don't like the word duty. Technically, that word's actually not in the original language. It says, this is the whole of man. There are some scholars who who say that what the teacher is arguing is, is that this is, this is what creates wholeness for human beings. When we fear God and we keep his commandments, we are whole. In other words, to obey God, to keep his commands, it's it's our essence, it's our way of being fully human. And you might go, well, that sounds weird, but let me just give a very practical, simple example. Think about sex. Sex is a very powerful impulse in human beings. And today, right now, in our cultural moment, the belief is, is that Every single one of us individually ought to be free to decide completely what to do with this incredibly powerful 
human impulse. Nobody has the right to tell you how to use your sexuality, and yet study after study after study after study confirms that married, monogamous sex is the most satisfying sex available. People want fireworks. People want romance. People want eroticism. People are flocking, which blows my mind in the Me Too movement era. People are flocking to Fifty Shades of whatever it is, which is basically about domination looking for sexual fulfillment in all kinds of places. And study after study after study after study says boring old married sex is the most satisfying sex you can find. Why? Because God made it. Because God made it. And he made it that way. When we do as we're designed to do, Generally speaking, when we conform our behavior to God's will, we're more fulfilled. We find joy. It's profoundly practical. And yet, we don't do that. And it seems like it's utterly impossible. And why is it utterly impossible? Because we have to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ to want it. Ask yourself this question. Try to be honest with yourself. Why do you not just do what God calls you to do? I don't care if you're not a Christian or you are a Christian. You've got the same problem. You're not doing what God tells you to do. I mean, to varying degrees, some of you are in very open rebellion, and you have told him, forget it. I am a, I'm doing my own thing. Thank you very much. Others of you have said, I want to follow you, but you fall. You stumble over and over and over again. If there's joy in following God, why? Why don't we do it? Why, if everybody wants satisfying sex, why are we constantly mad at God for putting all these parameters around it? Because on our own, we don't love God. Because on our own, we want to rule ourselves. Read the third chapter of Genesis, and you discover that every human heart, beginning with our first parents, is in rebellion against God and against his authority, and left to ourselves, we will never, ever, ever have the right motivation to obey him. It will always feel like knuckling under. It will always feel like being forced rather than being freed, unless you believe the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God himself, came into this world and became a human being like you and me to do what we couldn't do. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I came down not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is the fulfillment of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> He feared God and kept his commandments. He was the conclusion of the matter. He did it, but then he also went to the cross and he paid for our rebellion, dying in our place, so that Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he could say, he, excuse me, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And now when we read passages like verse 14 about the judgment where every hidden thing, whether good or evil, will be brought into God's light, we don't have to be terrified. We have nothing to hide because we've been smitten by his love. Johnny Cash describes the transformed life in this verse. I find it very easy, very, very easy to be true. I find myself alone when each day is through. Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Let's pray. Father, teach us to walk the line. Because in walking in obedience to you, we find joy unspeakable. It seems like foolish in this foolishness in this world to give up our autonomy, to be submissive to you. Help us to understand and know deep in our soul that you give us your will not to place burdens on us and suck the joy out of life, but actually to bring freedom to us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.